Hey, Katie. Hey, Ben. Genetics. Can we talk about genetics today? Yeah, I've been thinking about genetics a lot lately. Let's do it. Okay. You are listening to Linear Digressions. So why have you been thinking about genetics a lot lately? Well, I should say maybe a little bit more properly. I've been thinking about genomics. Uh, Oh, there's a difference. Oh, yeah. According to the internet, uh, genetics is the study of individual genes within your genome. And genomics is studying the entire genome sort of in all of its glory. So all of the, the, not just the individual genes, but potentially their interaction with each other and with other parts of your DNA. Oh, genetics is the, the micro econ and the genomics is the macro econ. Uh, yeah, I would say that's fair, but there's maybe something, I don't know enough about econ to know if this, if the metaphor completely holds, but one place where I think maybe genetics and genomics uh, are, there's something that's, that's interesting about their relationship, which is that, so your genome, we're thinking about the DNA in humans and your genome is, is made up of what we call base pairs. So there are these four different kinds of building blocks of DNA. We call them T, C, G, and A. And oh, I know them. I, I know what they are. They're the mm-hmm. amino acids and they're adenine, guanine, cytosine, and thyrine? Ooh, I, I don't know, but those sound like the right letters. <laughs> I just <laughs> oh, know them as T, C, G, and A. Um, adenine, I have to now, I think I'm pronouncing the last one wrong. Oh, no, actually, no, I'm correct. And that makes me so happy. I learned that from Star Trek, actually. Very good. You can learn a lot uh, from Star Trek. Your nerd credentials are impeccable. Thank you. Uh, You're welcome. So one of the things that's interesting about uh, your genome that I didn't totally realize uh, until embarrassingly recently is that we think of the, the A's and the T's and the C's and the G's. There's strings of billions of them in your cells. And we think of this as your as your DNA or as your chromosome or as your your genetics, if you like. Right. That it, so the way it works, as I understand it, is you've got these base pairs, and if you take groups of them, those are what make up your genes, and all of your genes are are your your DNA or all your base pairs. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And so the thing that I wanted to call out is that there's a difference between your genes, and your genome. So your genome is sort of the full string of everything, but only a small subset of your genome is actually the genes, where the genes are the uh, specific strings of them together that encode the way that uh, proteins are made. So wait, so you're saying if I take all of my genes and I string them up all together, that is not necessarily my genome, that is a part of my genome. Those That's the genes that are in my genome, but my genome has other stuff in there? Yeah, that's right. Uh, there's all this other DNA. For a while, it was called junk DNA, which is not a very good name huh. for it. It turns out they think it's pretty important for oh, really? protein okay. folding, I think. Uh, but yeah, there's this whole, uh, you know, 99% sort of like dark matter in your DNA that um, <laughs> that doesn't directly encode uh, the way that the proteins are built. But uh-huh. um, yeah, the other 1% or so is are the genes. And so if you want to study genomics one of the places where you need to start is by identifying where the genes are. And I think that, you know, after a lot of study, you might have some ideas about likely neighborhoods to look in, but in general, there are no hard and fast rules about exactly where these genes have to be within the genome. 
And Interesting. that is one of the things that's really challenging about working with genetic uh, sequencing and going in and finding the genes is actually identifying where in this gigantic string are the genes that we're looking at. Interesting. I, kind of abstractly, I'm thinking of it as your genome is this soup and floating in the soup are your genes. And of course, that metaphor is a little bit twisted because it's it's a one-dimensional strand and everything but like it feels like a hard problem to like go fishing and try and figure out where in this long strand of base pairs all of your individual genes start and what things are not your genes sure yes so let's imagine let's say we have a gene and it's got 20 base pairs in it and typically and we let's let's make it easy on ourselves and we'll say that we know that it's in some particular stretch, like a very long stretch of DNA. It's in there somewhere. And the question is just, you have to find it. Um, so what do you think are some of the, how would you go about solving that just naively given the description hmm. that I've given you? Hmm. I, knowing very, I, I know very little about this, but I'm guessing that genes tend to look similar to each other. Is that an accurate assumption? Uh. Not necessarily. Uh, I mean, they all look like, you know, the TCs and A's and G's. But Well, I guess there's got to be some kind of a marker, right, that that we can lock onto. Mm -hmm. Because Mm -hmm. if every gene looks completely different from every other gene, then how would you how how would you um, figure out where the genes start and end as opposed to just some of the, the noise or what we used to call junk DNA? Uh, yeah, sure. So that actually is a really good point. This wasn't where I was going with this, but I think you have, you've raised a better point than the one that I was ready to make. Oh, really? Yeah. So a lot of these genes, they have sort of turn on and turn off regions that you can identify. And I'm clearly not a geneticist or a genomicist, so I don't know a ton about like the details of the structure of the, of the gene that you can identify the turn on and the turn off. But uh, one person who is an expert in this and who's uh, who I'm recalling my conversation with a while back is Francesco. You remember Francesco? Francesco, yes, he was on the he was on the show. Yeah, he was one of like our very first listeners, and uh, got and in I touch with also, me. Also, was it our? Was he our only guest so far? Uh, we talked to that guy Tristan from. That's right. Uh, He's one of our two, two guests. Yes. Uh, but yeah, so he uh, he was working at Stanford, and he works in oh I don't know exactly what department he's in, but his his job is basically looking for genes in genomes, as I understand it anyway. And so they have this fancy equipment that they actually send in, um, you know, a bunch of DNA, and then it figures out what the sequence of the base pairs is, and then his job is to take something like that and to figure out where the genes are in it. And do you remember the tool that he would use to actually find the genes? I do not. Okay. I remember he was telling us about how he uses hidden Markov models for this, actually. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So a hidden Markov model, the idea is that you have some kind of underlying state. So right now, it would be the underlying state is whether you're in, let's say, a non-coding region. So you're not looking at something, you're not looking at the gene part of the DNA. And then there's the actual gene part of the DNA. And let's suppose that we're not even trying to figure out exactly what gene it is yet. We just want to know whether we're in it, the gene or not. 
And so he was talking about how a hidden Markov model um, is this sort of probabilistic model that especially models um, sort of transitions between states and also the idea that there can be noise in your measurements. So the idea is you're chugging along and you're kind of reading your genome one sequence at a time. And the, the information that you're getting, like each one of these base pairs is there could be, you know, sort of random mutations in there. There could be stuff that gets deleted or added randomly. So you're getting right, so kind it, of a noisy reading of yeah, what, yeah. Yeah, it, it could be a signal, but it also could just be some noise. Right, so you kind of have to continue to move along and sort of keep track of the possibility that you could be starting to enter a gene region at any given point and sort of be entertaining like the two possibilities of I'm continuing to look at a non-coding region versus maybe there's something that's turning on here and this is a this is a gene. I remember from our episode which is when I learned about it that it's almost like you've got this switch in a sense where you're guessing no I'm not in one of these regions versus yes I am and as you start coming across evidence signal that says hey you might be in a gene region then you kind of probabilistically flip that switch a little bit so the first couple pieces of signal you won't be you won't uh, have sw- uh, flipped the switch but once you get enough evidence then the switch flips and then you can say a bit more confidently that you're there whereas if you come across some noise it's going to say oh maybe I should flip the switch and then as you keep going you realize oh no that that noise is not that these data points are not consistent with the piece of noise that I thought was signal. Yeah. Yeah. And then the other thing that I remember he was talking about is the way that a hidden Markov model usually has a progression of transitions between states and will tell you sort of the order in which things have to happen. So in the case of genetics, what that means is that the gene starts to turn on and there's sort of this turn on region where you have the marker that indicates that you're entering possibly the beginning of a gene. And at some point that marker ends and you're actually in the DNA, you know, the DNA encoding region. So this is where the actual information is. And then there's also kind of a turnoff at the end. And so another thing that a hidden Markov model will tell you is that you in general can't go from turn on directly to turn off because we expect there to be something in between there. Um, and so you have sort of an idea, not just of where you are, but what you expect to happen next, which helps you then be a little bit more sensitive to it when you see it. Right. That makes sense. Yep. So hidden Markov models can be really handy for kind of chewing along through this DNA. There are a number of different genetic prediction algorithms, um, but hidden Markov models are the ones that I always liked the best. Or maybe I should say they're the ones I feel like I understand the best right now. Um, And so then, okay, let's imagine you have your set of genes. Let's say they're coming from my genome. And then what I'm interested in doing is is asking any questions like, do I have any weird mutations in here? Or is there anything else that should be on my radar is something that's a little bit funny. Mm -hmm. And of course, you can't do that unless you know where your genes are in the first place. Right. But let's suppose, so that's why that's important. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. But let's suppose I've like I've solved that problem of identifying them, and now I'm asking a, a higher order question, which is I'm trying uh, right. to I'm interested in the mutations, right? And so this is the second thing that I wanted to talk about today, and this is called gene alignment, um, and this is kind of cool too because there there is no ground truth of what our genome is supposed to look like. All we know is the many samples mm. of it that we've drawn, but of course everybody has their own weird 
copy of a genome, right? right? So there's no so basically your genes are not following a script. Or in computer science, you might say that your genes don't have a schema. That is, they don't have a clearly formed blueprint of what they should look like, the order that things should be in, how much space is between things, etc. Right. And so then when you're trying to compare, let's say, my genes to a reference set of genes, uh, figuring out sort of what are the, like, let's imagine that you're trying to figure out you have two different file systems. And you know that they both contain a lot of the same information, uh, not necessarily entirely the same information. So it's it's possible that you have a file that's in one system, but not in the other. And also mm-hmm. the individual files themselves can be, you know, mildly corrupted. They can be truncated in weird places. Maybe some of them have been merged together. And so you're trying to do this sort of strange, fuzzy matching type of procedure where you have to be open to the idea that uh, two things that are actually the same might not look like each other at first glance uh-huh. and, and being flexible when that happens. So you need, you need some kind of fuzzy logic. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And so this is uh, sort of... This is a hard problem. <laughs> this is super hard. This is hard. a really hard problem. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so so in, in um, programming, which is what I do as my day job, we use this thing called version control, mercurial or git or uh, subversion or whatever. These are all different uh, forms of version control. And rather than tracking files, we're tracking changes. And so maybe I'll make a change and my other coworker will make a change and my third coworker will make a change. And then at some point, all of these changes have to come together and the computer has to figure out, uh, well, obviously the computer has to figure out how to reconcile these changes. But the thing I'm thinking about right now, uh, talking to you about, about this topic, is when the computer tries to tell me, this is what has changed in your in your change set or in someone else's change set uh, and it kind of shows you the lines that were added in green and the lines that were uh, removed in red and sometimes with certain kinds of files it just gets it completely totally wrong it thinks that one part of a file is actually should actually syncs to a totally different part of the other file and this is fundamentally the problem is You've got these things that are almost exactly the same, maybe with a couple little changes, and you need to be able to sync them up relatively accurately. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to pull many conclusions, uh, clear conclusions out of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so the way that they solve this in genetics and genomics, I, there are a number of different algorithms that actually do the alignment. Um, one of the ones that I was reading about, I think this is one of the older ones and isn't used as much anymore, but it's a dynamic programming algorithm called Smith-Waterman. I'm not going to go into the full details of how this algorithm works because it starts to get a little bit intricate. But basically, you have two different genes. Let's suppose that we've, we're have pretty confident about where these genes uh, might begin and end. And the goal is to map one of them onto the other one. And so... What this means is, like, let's imagine they're not literally the exact same string of characters because that would be far too easy. Let's imagine a first simple difference that they could have is maybe one of them is the same as the other one, except it has a repeated letter in the middle of the sequence. Mm. And so you would step through and you would say, like, everything's lining up, everything's lining up. All of a sudden, that alignment doesn't work anymore because there's this character that they don't share. And you say, oh, okay, but if I skip this character in the one genome or in the one gene, and then I I have it in the other gene, and then I just sort of pick up on the other side and I keep moving them together in tandem, then 
we're fine and we've identified the difference between the two genes. It's this one letter that's Mm -hmm. been inserted into the middle. Something similar that you might have is that instead of having a character uh, inserted, you could have a character that gets dropped. You could also have a character that gets flipped. That gets, yeah, changed from one to the other. Yeah. And then, of course, you can have any kind of combination and permutation of all of these things. So in practice, they actually, the differences can be fairly intricate. And it's not usually very clear at the outset what's the best way to align these two things. Also, you can have one of them that starts in a slightly different place or ends in a slightly different place than the other one. Mm. So there's a lot of degrees of freedom when you're trying to do this alignment. And uh, you're trying to sort of optimize over all of them at the same time. And that's what Smith-Waterman does is it explores all the different options that you have or all the options that make sense really, for the alignment that could be taking place here. Like, oh, maybe we have a shift and then a skip, or maybe we have a skip and then two shifts and then and then a deletion, and then maybe that's a better alignment. And so for each one of these different options of the ways that you could align them, it assigns sort of a reward when you end up with two letters that overlap in the same place, because we say that that's a good sign that we're seeing the same thing. And then there's penalties of different weights for when you have to do things like introduce a skip or introduce a new base pair, or you have to rearrange some letters or flip some letters, those sorts of things. That's interesting. So you're basically running, you're running through this and you're trying all sorts of things. What happens if I skip? What happens if I assume something was added or deleted or, or changed? And then if you tend to line up a good amount of the time, you get a reward for each one of those. The algorithm at least gets a, a reward or something or a higher score. And then all of the things that you have to do to get it to keep lining up are all of your penalties. Of course, if you end up misaligning and then you keep misaligning for the for the you know the rest of the of the gene, that's obviously not good and that's going to rank very low. Yeah, yeah. So you try all the different combinations and then each one each one has a score depending on how good it is when things align and how bad it is when things don't quite align. Um, and then the thing that gets the highest score overall, you say, is sort of like your your optimal point. And then you have to solve back for the, um, the actual sequence that gives you that uh, best solution. Um, and so it's actually pretty computationally intensive. That's why it's not. That's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say that like you're running through. It's kind of like solving chess by brute force. You know, it's not like you're you're doing anything smart. You're just trying all of the different combinations and ranking them. Yep. Yep. And, you know, you have some constraints on it that help keep things under control. But yeah, so now the there's a different set of algorithms that I think they use for most of their their workhorse tasks uh, that are a little bit faster. I think they cut some of the corners in a way that very rarely actually affects the quality of the output. I think if you want to really exhaustively search the space, you still use uh, Smith Waterman, perhaps. But there are some other algorithms now that they that they use that are um, a little bit try to search in a little bit more of an efficient way. But yeah, you, you're starting to get an idea of how working with genetics and genomics, um, not only is it gigantic amounts of data that you have to deal with, but it's also data that's very, it's tricky to work with, right? Right, yeah. Linear digressions is a creative commons endeavor, which means you can share or use it any way you like. Just tell them we said hi. To find out more about this or any other episode of Linear Digressions, go to LinearDigressions.com. 
And if you like this podcast, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes so other people get to listen to this content too. You can always get in touch with either of us. Our emails are ben at lineardigressions.com and katie at lineardigressions.com in case you have comments or suggestions for future shows. You can tweet us at lindigressions. Thank you for joining us and we'll see you next time.